Let's open to the first chapter of John this morning. Thank Dan for filling in last week. I heard you got the birth narrative. Is that uh, the way it was? <laughs> John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. Let's stand together in honor of the word of God, and I will read it. Heavenly Father, bring your spirit upon us. Open our eyes to this passage that we might understand it. Not just understand it, but that it would come and dwell within us, empower us that we would live it out. We would fear no man, but walk in humbleness only before you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. First chapter of John, verses 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. This is God's inspired word for us today. Please be seated. You'll notice in 15, just as an aside, John bore witness of him, cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now you remember... Elizabeth was pregnant first, prior to Mary's conception. So, in our times, John the Baptist was in existence first. But he says, he who comes after me, in the sense that he was born after me, has a higher rank because he existed before me. So what John is saying here is that John the Baptist understood that Jesus was here from all eternity. And all we have to go back to is, is the first verse in the chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you remember, it literally says, before the beginning began. Okay? And John the Baptist understood his spot before the Lord was not to take preeminence, but was to, you know, I must decrease, he must increase. Why? Because he was here before me. He has preeminence over me. Now... Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The fullness of the eternal father was manifest in his son and God became flesh. Now, frankly, if if you read through the Bible in a year or read through uh, John, you kind of zoom through this passage and you say, well, yeah, of course, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We kind of, as believers, understand that the only way our sin could be forgiven was for God to make a way that we could be reconciled to him. And the way he decided upon was to provide us salvation through sending his only son into the world that whosoever believes upon him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So all those things are wrapped up in this. And and we can easily breeze through this and say, well, yeah, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was Jesus. Let's, Let's think about this 
for a moment. I think one of the problems is we, we just do not have the capacity in our mortal and finite minds to understand what this means. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to philosophize this or, or anything. I'm just saying that this is so far beyond our capacity to understand as not to make it not to make it so it doesn't make an impact upon us, but we really have to think about it for a moment. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became flesh and came into this world. Now, who is God? He is the righteous, holy, just, eternal, immortal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, perfect in all that he does, in all that he desires, and he took on mortal flesh. He didn't have to. He could have found some other way to bring salvation upon his creation and upon those who are his, but the perfect God took on the flesh like us, and he came into this world and dwelt among us. Perfect, without sin, never being disobedient to his father, never doing anything out of step, only doing the will of his father, and that was perfect. He became flesh and dwelt among us. It, it, you know, I've been working on it all week, and, and I'm getting a better idea of it, but still, I just, I just can't grasp how something that is perfect and holy and just would come into this earth in this form that is like us. And which of us are perfect and holy and just? Uh, let me go through the list. Eternal, immortal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, perfect in all that we do and desire. None of us. But that was the, the issue that Christ dealt with. He was still perfect, but he took on the flesh like us. Now, for those atheists who met a few weeks in, uh, ago here in, in Huntsville, they can point to the world around them and to science and have great faith and say that there is no God. And, you know, others have done that. And, and one of my, my favorite stories is uh, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin. 1961, he goes up, he's, he's circling the globe, and he comes back, and he says, I have been to the heavens, and there is no God. Now, I think it was Billy Graham who said, well, if he would have opened the door to his capsule, he'd have met God. Okay? <laughs> there you go. Well, at some point, we have to realize that God does not operate in the same way that we do. His mind and his thoughts are not clouded by sin. He is not selfish. He is not tossed about by every wind and wave as we are. He does not change with the societal whims of the day. He is the same each and every day. His will is perfect, and his purposes are just and right, and he chose to take on flesh and dwell among us. No greater demonstration of love can be found than that. Now, the phrase that God dwelt among us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word dwelt, well, we think we come and we dwell in a place for a little bit. We come and we uh, live there. And, and uh, I, I was just thinking recently that uh, this is the, I've, I've lived, how long have I lived in this house? Judy and I, eight, almost nine years. That's the longest we lived any place in our married lives. Now, that is dwelling. We dwell out in Madison. Well, that's not quite the same connotation that this word brings. This word here means to pitch your tent or to tabernacle. 
Now, when I say the word tabernacle, hopefully you think right back to the Old Testament and the tabernacle, which was a physical yet transient structure that the Israelites built upon the direction of the Lord. And that was a place where the Lord dwelt. That was a place where his Shekinah glory dwelt in the Holy of Holies right there over the mercy seat, and he was in amongst his people. Okay, So when John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, when he uses that word, all those who have any Jewish roots in their, in, in their history are going to go tabernacled, and they're going to think immediately back to the things of the Old Testament. And all that came with that word, there was the place where the law of Moses was kept. There was the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go only once a year to offer uh, a sacrifice for atonement for the people on the Day of Atonement. It was the place where God communicated to his people. Often we see it is the tent of meeting, where the people would come and they would hear from the Lord. The tribes were all placed in specific places around the tabernacle because it was in the middle of the camp. And whenever they would move, they would pick it up, move it off, and they would set up in the same way each and every time. It was there sacrifices were made. Blood was spilt for the atonement of sin. People worshipped at the tabernacle. All of these things are tied up in this word, and he dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and it came and lived here in this world. All the physical glory of our heavenly father dwelt in Christ because he was made flesh and came here. And we beheld his glory. Look over in 2 Corinthians. This is not something, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is not something for only the past. As we see as Paul deals with the, the church at Corinth, he mentions about the glory of Christ and what that means and how this is active in the world today. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. See, that glory of Christ is being revealed, and we who belong to him are being transformed. A little bit more holiness each and every day as we seek his face, as we pursue that. The ultimate transformation doesn't come until we stand before him in heaven. But that is the process of sanctification, moving closer and closer to the things of Christ and more Christ-likeness. Now, some days we move pretty fast towards Christ, and other days we're just treading water, and we're not moving in godliness at all. We're just kind of in a holding pattern. Even some days we might slip. But over our lives, we are to move closer and closer to the things of Christ. So we become more and more like him and less and less like the flesh. Now John says, so you might say, okay, all this, and we beheld, back to John chapter 1, the word became flesh, dwelled among us, tabernacled among us, all the glory of God was revealed in Christ, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. There are two types of glory that are mentioned here. One is is that of the glory of the only begotten of the Father. That's the first kind of glory. The second kind of glory is glory that is full of grace 
and truth. Well, what kind of glory is that of the only begotten of the Father? Well, here again, there are, in a sense, two types of glory under this. There is essential glory. That glory that is of the same essence. Christ is of the same essence of the Father. If the Father has glory, and that really makes up who the Father is, it's this weightiness, this glory. If you uh, know, uh, read in Revelation, the glory of his train fills the temple. Okay, And we see in the Old Testament that his glory fills the place. Well, this is glory because of the essence of who the Father is. Christ is of the same essence of the Father, so he has this same essential glory, this, this weightiness, this, this holiness, this, this glory that fills the place. And then there's secondly, a second type of glory would be a, a moral glory revealed in his attributes, revealed in his person, revealed in his character. He too is just and holy and wise, and the things that he does are right, and he pursues the things of the Father. Now, why does he pursue these these two things? Because these are composites of salvation. His glory is revealed first in his moral glory, revealed in two ways, saving grace and healing grace. Saving grace and healing grace. Now, we don't have to look very far to come up with how this works in our lives. Saving grace, transformational grace. We are dead in our sins. We are without hope. Only when Christ comes along are we made alive. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2. Dead in our sin, we are made alive in the things of Christ. It is the work of our Heavenly Father. Now the number of lives that have been transformed by this saving grace could not be counted in the same way that the number of lives that have not been touched by this saving grace are simply uncountable throughout history. Now, if we took some time and had, if we were, if we were all Baptists, and, uh, I should say, how many of you have been Baptist some point in your life? Okay, oh, plenty. Then you might know what we call a, a testimony service. Okay? You have the mics down front, and you come and you give testimony to the things of the Lord, or maybe how you came to Christ. And if we did that, if we had a testimony service, odds are we would miss lunch. Okay? Because we would get going and talk about how you came to Christ. And then, then somebody else, and, and we would all rejoice in those things. And we could go on and on for, for quite some time about how God's grace has transformed our lives. We each have our own story about how he came to us. Now, maybe you were raised up in the church and through Sunday school. And, and, and your Sunday school, you were sitting in Sunday school and your teacher was going through a lesson. And the Lord opened your eyes at that moment. Maybe at 6, maybe at 10, maybe at 12. And your Sunday school teacher said, is this what you believe and would you like to pray? And you said yes. And then what a great testimony if your Sunday school teacher was here in the room and remembered that day as well. Or maybe you were one of the uh, really lost, if you could be any more lost than we are outside of Christ, but really lost, really pursuing sin, really giving yourself completely over to sin, and the Lord comes and wallops you and changes your whole life in an instant. You're going this way, you're completely on the road to hell, and all of a sudden the Lord saves you and turns you, and now you're on his path. And we would give glory to God in the same way, because each was a sinner Each was saved by the same grace. Well, the atheists don't have testimony nights. Uh, They don't miss lunch because they're giving glory to themselves because their lives have been so changed by the fact that they've come to realize there is no God. There's no great testimony there. 
Now, in their minds, they may have been freed in some fashion from the oppression of religion. Well, religion can be oppressive. Not Christianity, which is the things of Christ, but religion, which is man-made. You know, we can get tied up in our own do's and don'ts and the way we think you ought to live and you ought to do this and you ought not to do that. That's religion. When we look at the grace that comes in Christ, that's Christianity. Those are the things of Christ. Now, we would much rather have grace than justice, don't you think? Okay, justice, what do we deserve? Our just desserts, our just desserts are not sweet. They're not chocolate, okay, for all eternity. It's bad. If we got justice in our lives of what we deserve because of our sin, we would all have no hope of salvation and we would be eternally damned. But we get grace, and grace upon grace. Grace that is beyond the capacity of our sin to pull us away. That grace is bestowed upon us. It is more than sufficient for whatever we need. And it is changes, it changes our lives and moves us to the things of Christ. This is transformational grace. And this is the grace that comes from Christ, who came and gave his life to, for us while we were still in our sin. He didn't wait for us to get cleaned up. He came while we were still in our sin. And that grace has been poured out upon us. Now, of course, there is also what we'll call healing grace. Now, we all know of people that we have prayed for who have not been healed. We have made diligent use of the things of of Christ and the things of grace and mercy. We have read the word and we have prayed that the Lord would come and bring his healing upon us. And I doubt that there's anybody here who hasn't wrestled with the question of, Lord, why didn't you? I mean, this was a godly individual. Why didn't you come and heal? And, and some of those things we'll never know. Well, I want to tell you the story of a guy that I met in Oregon. Uh, Jim is a, a great, great believer. And I met him in November when I was out there previously dealing with this church in, in transition here. And, and Jim told us that he had this very aggressive and, and deadly uh, brain cancer, and it manifests itself in two tumors in his head. One was, the, the larger one was inoperable, and it had many fingers on it and was working itself into his brain, and he said there's really no hope for it. Uh, and the other was operable, but because of the, the size and, and the position of the other, um, I never thought that I would see Jim again. Well, when I was out there last weekend, we were in a meeting, and there's Jim. And I said, Jim, basically, I was shocked. I said, you're still here. And, and he said, yes. I went to the doctor last week. And he said, the large tumor is gone. And I said, what do you mean? You know, it was, it was plain. And so I said, what do you mean the large tumor is gone? The one with all the fingers, the one that was inoperable? He said, yes, it's gone. Well, tell me about it. And he said, well, there I am sitting in the doctor's office. And, and we had the MRI, and he looks at it. And he won't look up at me. And he's just, he, he can't believe it. He's, he's looking through this stuff, and he just can't believe it. And then he tells me. And then Jim says, well, what do we do now? And the doctor says, I don't know. No one's ever survived this. No, I've never seen this in my life. I don't know what to do. And, and so this big one is gone. It, it doesn't show up on any scan. It's completely gone. And he says, I've got this little one here. And he had a port in his head under his skin to, to drain. He says, do you think I can get this port removed? And the doctor said, I don't know how to do that. Okay, I only put them in. Nobody ever takes them out. Okay? So we understand 
this was going to kill him. And it, it, it may down the road, but that big tumor is gone. And there is no other explanation than the grace of the Lord. And Jim is a very humble guy. And, and every time we talk about it, he kind of tears up and he says, I don't have any explanation. Then it was the Lord. Okay? And, and we, we give glory for God's healing grace in that fashion. And even the oncologist said, I, I don't have any other explanation. The Lord must have done something in your life. Oh, yeah, he sure did. Okay? He sure did. So we have saving grace, we have healing grace. These are demonstrations of the things of Christ. We also have, in his glory, the demonstration of his glory, we also have the glory that is revealed in truth. The glory that is revealed in truth. Not that Jesus was true, that he really existed. Now we know that historically he was, he existed. But that he was truth, with a capital T, he was truth. And therefore, all that he was, all that he said, all that he did were true and was used to reveal the truth of God. Now, truth is a strange commodity in our world today. People don't always believe in truth. They want to qualify it. It's my truth. It's your truth. It's relative truth. It's truth for a community. It's truth for today. Well, that was true yesterday. My favorite is, um, well, that's, that's a help, not a helpful truth. Not a helpful truth. When we testify to absolute truth of the saving grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, we should not be surprised that some people are simply unimpressed with it because they don't believe in that. Their eyes have not been open. They might be polite to you and they might say, well, that's fine or that's fine for you, but, but that's not for me. That's not true for me. Yes, it is true because it is a universal and absolute truth, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, we also might get the other side, where people will say, don't bother me with that stuff, because it's not true, and they're aggressive in their unbelief. But Scripture says we are to be gracious to people, stand firm on what it is that we believe, always ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within, with gentleness, okay, with gentleness. If the truth of Christ is real in our lives, it will be undeniable by the way that we act. Now, again, I'll tell you about Portland. On Sunday afternoon, uh, we had a question and answer session, two hours. And about 150 people showed up, and, and Trish and I, who was another member of the commission, we were just simply answering the questions about the process we went through and, and the outcome and all that, and, and hopefully to help them move on to the next phase. And the people were really concerned about, about the budget of the church. It's, it's, it's an incredibly large budget. There are a lot of people, go, a lot of things happening there. They were concerned about the life of, of their church and, and sometimes even the existence of their church. And they, one guy stood up and he said, okay, Randy, how can we get that parking lot full of cars again? Okay. How can we get that parking lot full of cars? Well, I told them which probably they, did, they wanted a, a process answer. They wanted a, a pragmatic answer. Well, if you get the, the cool sign out on the street, if you uh, get better, better music, if you do this and this and this, then you'll draw people, maybe a laser light show and smoke and all that. I don't know. I, I said, i tell you what, you want the parking lot full of cars again? Again, because at one time they had been a 1,000 more on Sunday than they were presently. I said, this is what you do. 
When the members of this church begin to live uncompromising lives for Christ, when they begin to demonstrate the truth of the things of the gospel in the works of their hands, in works of mercy and compassion and grace within this community, when the gospel goes forward from your mouths and from your hands, it will be un- the grace will be undeniable. The truth of Christ will be undeniable and people will flock and that parking lot will be full because they'll say, Christ is there and I've got to have it. And then I looked at my watch and I said, it's 6.15, I have to get to the airport. And I stood up and I left. Okay? I mean, just that abrupt. Because I told them at 6.15, we were leaving. Well, somewhere between, they have a green room. You know, like, uh, what a green room is? Uh, Before you come out on TV, you hang out in the green room. Well, they have a green room. It tells you the size of the church. And I went in there, I grabbed my stuff, and I'm on the way out. And a woman was standing there outside the doorway of the green room. And she said, you know what? You spoke for two hours. The last two minutes were the only thing that was important. (laughs) At least something was important. (laughs) She said, that's what we need to hear. I mean, because that's the truth. If we live the Christian life, God will use us. Lives will be changed because we're obedient. And people will flock. Not to us, but to Christ. I said, I could have emailed you that. (laughs) I didn't have to come out here. But when, when you know the truth, with a capital T, that's Christ. When you know it is absolute, and when you live in that way, nothing can contain the grace of God that pours from the obedient believer's hands and mouth. As we proclaim the things of Christ, because it is true, as we demonstrate the things of Christ, people will see it and go, "I, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with your compassion. I can't argue with your mercy. I can't argue with your unselfishness. It is. Why is it? And there's the chance. It is because of Christ who dwells within me. Because of Christ who dwells within me. Christ himself is this great blessing. And he blesses this world in a variety of fashions. Sometimes it's saving grace. Sometimes it's healing grace. Everybody receives what is known as common grace. Common grace is that which keeps us from destroying one another. Anything good that comes into your life, whether you're a believer or not, is from the Lord and is known as common grace. The real blessing that we get is Christ himself. If you're thirsty, what does he offer? The water in which you will never thirst again. If you're hungry, he says what? I'm the bread of life. Those who feast upon me will never hunger again. See, we're not talking about the flesh. We're talking about something greater than that. We're talking about the longing within our hearts, the the, the great desires that we think we have. We were created in the image and likeness of our Heavenly Father for a relationship with him. The only way to restore that relationship is through the truth. The word made flesh, and he came and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, this truth that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, we can grasp some of it, but it really is beyond us. But the part that we can understand is this grace that is 
bestowed upon us, this grace that rains down upon us, this grace that changes our lives, this grace that brings healing and strength. It is the truth of Christ, and we are called to live this out. When we are obedient, there can be no mistake that it is your grace that empowers us. It is the Spirit that goes before us. It is the things of Christ that flow from our mouths and our hands. Acts of mercy and compassion where we stand uncompromising on the truth of Christ. All of these things, Lord, that's how you call us to live. That's how you call us to manifest the word made flesh in this world and dwelt among us, and you call us to manifest it in our lives, that the world will now see Christ in us. We don't care if they remember our names. We care that they remember you. We don't care about any credit. We care about changed lives, and we are only the instruments to communicate that grace. Lord, there are those, perhaps among us here, whose heart needs to be changed today. There are those who we come in contact with, Lord, that we pray that you will use us as that instrument to communicate this grace and the truth of Christ to them, that we will do it with gentleness, but we will do it in an uncompromising fashion. They cannot say there is no truth because their heart will be so convinced and changed and their eyes open that Jesus Christ is the truth. And no one gets to the Father. No one finds the peace that they need. No one finds the grace that they so desire. No one finds that rest outside of Christ. Lord, make us your instrument for your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In preparation for communion, let us stand and sing the first two verses of 567 here.